Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, podcast listeners. Welcome to another episode of New Books in Asian American Studies. I'm Chris Patterson. Today we are joined by Eric Tang, who is an assistant professor in the African and African Diaspora Studies Department and a faculty member in the Center for Asian American Studies at the University of Texas, Austin. We will discuss his new book, Unsettled Cambodian Refugees in the New York City Hyperghetto, which was published by Temple University Press in 2015. I first met Eric back in 2009 when I was organizing for the Asian American Studies Research Collective at the University of Washington. We invited Eric Tang to speak to us because we were inspired by his ability to converge his experiences as an activist and community organizer with that of a public scholar. Reading over his work, we found more than just a wise scholar and activist, but also a sharp mind that saw larger forms of power that affected African Americans, Latinos, as well as Southeast Asians. His book, Unsettled, is a testament to his abilities as a scholar, as well as to the compassion, sympathy, and engagement he exhibits as an activist. Unsettled is an intimate ethnography of a single person, Ra Pran, a 50-year-old survivor of the Cambodian genocide, who afterwards spent nearly six years in refugee camps in Thailand and the Philippines before moving to the Northwest Bronx in 1986. Narrating Ra's story through numerous interviews conducted with her, Uh, Eric Tang observes how her story allows us to reconceive of the refugee experience, not as an arrival, but as a continued entrapment, where the refugee has been seemingly rescued as a solution to America's imperial wars overseas and to its domestic wars against its poorest residents within what Tang calls the hyper-ghetto. So let me welcome Eric Tang to the podcast. Welcome, Eric. How are you doing? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Okay, great. Could you uh, begin the interview by telling us a bit about what brought you to study uh, Ra's story and your own interest in the experiences of Cambodian refugees in New York? Sure. So this book comes directly out of my experiences as a um, community organizer working in the Bronx, um, New York, where I was uh, born and raised. And, you know, for... Pretty much all of my 20s, I worked as an organizer in the um, refugee community of the Northwest Bronx. Few people know that this is um, an area that the largest concentration of Vietnamese and Cambodian refugees were resettled uh, in New York City. And, um, you know, it's a unique community in that it doesn't have the, the elements of an ethnic economy, mm-hmm. you know, like a Chinatown or a little Saigon. And it's a community that, you know, is void of ethnic capital and the kind of like class heterogeneity that you might see in these more well-known uh, Asian immigrant enclaves. It is a community that was homogeneously poor, um, where unemployment was rampant, welfare dependency pervasive. And as a, um activist in my 20s, I was drawn to how unique this community was compared to the more standard narratives about 
Asian immigrant communities in the United States. And so I began working with this, um, with, with the young people in the, in the community primarily. And, um, and this book is really an outgrowth of those experiences. Uh, I left community organizing about, you know, 10 years ago. And, um, but the story stayed with me, you know, the story of who these refugees were, how they understood their unfinished sojourn stayed with me. And when I decided to write my first book, this was, um, the topic that just wouldn't go away. Mm. And, um, and yeah, so that's what led me to this project. So this was or was not based on uh, your dissertation? Hmm. That's a good question. Um, so I did write my dissertation about my organizing experiences, but this book was is not a dissertation um, revision project. Hmm. Uh, it didn't feature Rapron, uh, the dissertation that is. And the arguments that I made in the dissertation were – were were different than the arguments that I make in the book. So, uh, yes, topically, I guess we could say that the dissertation and the book, um, are, you know, are the same or are on the same, on the same topic, but the, the framework, the arguments, the, the raison d'etre really behind the book mm. is different than it was in the, um, in the dissertation. Yeah, and I'm recommending that for any perspective <laughs> uh, PhDs out there. Um, but it is the choice I made uh, for better or for worse. I think for better. Well, the, the reason I, I was curious about that was, you know, when I, as soon as I picked up the book, um, I was expecting a kind of like sociological overview based on a lot of uh, interviews with a lot of different people. You know, something like Iowa Ong's Buddha is hiding or something like that, and then. It was, it was a fascinating read because it's so focused on one person's story and it seems like so unique, it's such a unique narrative kind of driving the whole book. Can you explain a bit, um, why you chose one particular subject for it? Like that seemed like something I was, I was a bit astonished for because I know like some dissertation committees that I was thinking of probably would advise against doing that. Yet it almost made the book a lot more powerful and the arguments a lot more powerful. So I decided to focus on Ra and her family and tell their story over the course of, you know, three decades. Because when I was framing the book, I, um, I wanted to explain what was happening to refugees across different hyper ghetto sites. So the housing units, the, um, welfare state, the sweatshop economy. And at first I thought, okay, I will pull in different subjects and informants to fill out each of these sites, these spaces. But as I interviewed Ra and as our relationship grew through those interviews, it was clear to me that she wanted to tell her full story. Like she wasn't interested in just Mm -hmm. talking about her housing situation which um, we began with. And then it became even clearer to me that, wow, across each of these hyper-ghetto sites that I'm interested in, she has lived some exceptional experiences, right, across each of them. And it dawned on me that I could actually tell a more effective story and meet my objective 
of talking about this, um, this continuum, right? This continuity between war, camp, and ghetto by traveling with her. Hmm. That it would make for more effective storytelling. Um, it would give the book more structure and it would help me illustrate some of the key concepts that the book invokes, two of which um, are refugee temporality, this notion that the refugee experiences time and space between war, camp, and ghetto as continuous, as unclosed, mm. and refugee exceptionalism, the, um, the way in which the refugee is exempted from hyper-ghetto status, even as she is subjected to its violences, how she's discursively rescued from it, not for her benefit so much as the to serve the broader project of anti-blackness, of criminalization of African-Americans in particular in the hyper-ghetto. So these two concepts are, are central to the book, and I found that as I was writing it, it was more effective to get them across each of these hyper-ghetto spaces by following one person in particular. Mm. And, um, and so the book does that, and it's not an exhaustive autobiographical account of Ra's life, but it is a, um, a chronicling of her life across these hyper-ghetto spaces. So you, you mentioned those two terms, refugee temporality and exceptionalism. Um, but I'm wondering if you could just define for us real quick the, the first one that we've been kind of using but haven't defined, which I think is hyper-ghetto. Mm -hmm. is, there, is there a kind of history to that term, or how, how do you see the history of the hyper-ghetto? How does it function as a space of captivity that's different from what we would see as uh, just a normal ghetto? Right. So the hyper-ghetto is a term that was coined by sociologist Louis Chouquant. And um, he uses it to both periodize uh, a certain stage of uh, urban life, as well as to differentiate conceptually um, and sociologically the, the difference between traditional ghettos and hyper-ghettos. So in... Laquan's formulation, the hyper-ghetto begins in the late 1960s, after the urban unrest of 67 and 68. This is the moment in which the public sector, government, and the private sector realize that the traditional African-American ghetto, right, uh, the, the ghetto proper of the, of the mid 20th century, uh, is a political force that needs to be broken up. And that comes into sharp relief during the late 1960s with the urban unrest. What few people misunderstand about 1967 and 68 was that these were not strictly impoverished communities, uh, void of ethnic capital, um, that were homogeneously poor. These were multi-class communities where black businesses thrived, where um, 
black professionals, college educated, uh, students, you know, working class folks all cohabitated. And, um, this was the environment that provided the political base for the urban unrest of, of 1967 and 68. So when this, insurrectionary moment takes place in the late 1960s, the federal government's response and the private sector's response is we need to really break up these communities to not give them this power base anymore. And so they just, they engage in planned shrinkage. They disperse the black community. Uh, Middle-class folks are given more opportunities to to go elsewhere. And the poorest of the poor are concentrated in what remains of these ghettos. And at that point, they become hyper ghettos. Mm. Hyper ghettos are more homogeneously poor. They're sites where, um, cap, that are void of capital, where, um, the industrial working class is now replaced by a permanently unemployable, underemployed, uh, segment or a subproletariat segment, and where their captivity is more the defining characteristic than their productivity. And, What's interesting is that new immigration takes shape at the exact same time, the late 1960s through the 70s. But very few new immigrants from Asia, Latin America, and elsewhere resettle to hyper-ghettos. They resettle to other poorer sections of the city, but not to hyper-ghettos. The lone exception to that rule are Southeast Asian refugees, particularly those from Vietnam, Cambodia, and Laos. They are what I call the lone immigrant event to hyper-ghettos during the late 1970s through the 80s and into the early 90s. And my book explores that singularity. How and why are Southeast Asian refugees the lone immigrant groups to set, resettle to hyper-ghettos during this period? And did you find a particular answer to that? Well, so the, so the standard you know, narrative about um, labor migrations under global capitalism, especially from Asia, is that uh, there's a global circuit of capital. You have multinational corporations, FTZs in Asia, and these workers who are working for um, global capitalism in their homelands uh, find certain pressures created in those homelands which drive them from, you know, from Korea, China to the United States. And here they're following this global circuit, um, this global circuit of capital to the United States. They wind up in ethnic economies, some of them in sweatshops or other firms where they're working for those same, you know, transnational corporations, but now from where? From Chinatown, right? From, from the sweatshops. And as part of these ethnic economies, which are a simulacrum of, um, the uh, the free trade zones and the and the downgraded manufacturing firms in Asia, and so this is the kind of standard narrative coming out of this sociology of globalization. Southeast Asian refugees are seen as an exception to all that, right? Mm-hmm. Their travel to the United States is mediated not by capital but by the state, and as such, they get routed not to these ethnic economies but to places in the urban landscape that are regulated by the state. And the hyper-ghetto is the um, the firmest example of that, right? And so it's no coincidence that 
the subjects of, you know, state control, African Americans in particular, um, that their homes, their, their neighborhoods become the resettlement sites for state mediated refugees. Mm-hmm. It is, it's a, such a fascinating way to, um, look at globalization from, from this very specific point of view. And one of the, um, words that you used to describe the hyper ghetto uh, here and in your book, um, was as a kind of space of captivity, as you called it. And, um, I think that's a very interesting way to look at it. Look, as since we're looking at it through the lens of Ra's story, and I'm wondering how, um, how you felt her story especially spoke to what a hyper ghetto was, um, you know, the kind of modes of resistance or at least alternative, you know, ways of living within hyper ghettos. And what does her story particularly lend to how we understand the hyper ghetto? Right. Um, so the refugee in the hyper ghetto should not be seen as an exceptional figure. Okay. The notion that she's only in the hyper ghetto, but not of it is, I think, a, um, a misguided way of reading why Cambodian and other Southeast Asians arrived to these sites during the, the 80s and 90s. What I think the refugee tells us about the hyperghetto is that it is indeed a site where um, the forms of like social welfare and um, and social work, essentially, that we associate with impoverished communities have become more um, punitive and um, have taken on a kind of carceral function, if you will, right? How like the carceral state and the social welfare state have, have meshed. And what you see in Ra's life is that coupling in, in very stark ways. So you see it in how the welfare bureaucrats who um, once told refugees to apply for every single welfare program they possibly could apply for, mm-hmm. all of a sudden become what? They become a, a kind of policing force to make sure that refugees do not abuse welfare, right? That they don't become welfare cheats. You have a, um, you know, a child welfare system that is meant to protect children, but instead finds ways to criminalize mothers who um, are struggling to make ends meet. And um, all of this comes across in, in Ra's story. You, you see it in the way that she is, um, you know, forced to take up supplemental income as a um, garment home worker because welfare doesn't pay enough, but then has to do this in very clandestine ways for fear that she will get into legal trouble because she's, you know, earning supplemental income while she's also on welfare. So all these ways in which her daily life is criminalized and policed tell us that the hyperghetto is indeed a site of captivity where um, its subjects are, you know, that where their poverty is criminalized and also their daily life is regulated by the repressive uh, aspects of, of the state, um, how the social welfare state and the penal state have merged. How, how did other populations in the Bronx 
uh, black and Latino mainly, perceive of these Cambodian refugees and other Southeast Asians? Uh, what was it like for Ra to be kind of thrust into this multiracial environment? How were they kind of made to compete with each other or to, you know, there was a lot of linguistic differences. Uh, can you explain that kind of that environment? So many of the black and Latino families that witnessed the arrival of Cambodian refugees to the Bronx during the 80s were just stunned that um, any new immigrant group, much less a group arriving from the war zone, would actually want to resettle to these neighborhoods, which were themselves, you know, war zones, right, mm-hmm. which were teetering on collapse in, in many in many ways. And, you know, they, they couldn't fathom why you would, you would come here. You would hear this consistently in, um, in, in the interviews with, um, with housing organizers who were like, you know, working with black, blacks and Latinos. They were like, this makes no sense. You know, I get that you're poor, you're penniless, but why come here of all places? You know, there are other parts of the city that you might consider resettling to. And it was only, you know, over time that they realized these refugees had no say in whether or not they were, they were going to be resettled to the Bronx or somewhere else, that they were effectively placed there by agencies. So the question becomes, why would these agencies place them there? And they placed them there because they found cheap housing in buildings with a lot of vacancies. Well, the logical question is, why did these buildings have so many vacancies? It's because the long-standing residents, many of them, wanted out. They wanted out because of crime, because of threat of arson, so on and so forth. And it didn't dawn on these resettlement agencies that they were effectively placing them in neighborhoods which were being left for dead. And so this is what um, the refugees experienced upon their first day of arrival to the United States. And in their view, it was strikingly reminiscent of previous stops, you know, how handlers before the social workers in the United States would just place them in these um, areas that were sites of, you know, social death, where employment wasn't really a possibility where, um, you know, making a life and a vibrant community wasn't a possibility. These sites, which effectively functioned as camps and camps alone. And in that sense, the hyper ghetto can be thought of as a kind of camp, right? Mm-hmm. So to say that the refugees were completely surprised by what they were experiencing or that what they were experiencing was foreign to them is not exactly true. In many ways, it was familiar. And um, they were quickly introduced then to how racial oppression works in the United States. It was not a coincidence. It was not incidental that those who were, you know, living alongside them in captivity were blacks and Latinos. And one could say that they got their education on, you know, race and racial hierarchy on their first day um, of arrival to the Bronx. And you, you, you became very familiar with uh, a lot of these refugees through your own experience with the, the YOP, the, the Youth Leadership Project in New York. Uh, can you tell us a bit about this organization, what its main goals were, how it 
kind of affected your thinking during the time you were in it? So many of the uh, refugees who resettled to the Bronx had um, lost family members during the uh, the war and the Cambodian genocide. Uh, some of them even lost their oldest children. So while in the camps, you know, they, um, as part of their healing process, as part of moving on, attempted to recreate family. Some were remarried. Um, others who were already married decided, but lost children, decided to have more children. And so what you had was a whole generation that didn't know about Cambodia, but only knew the camps because they had been born there and spent their, you know, their early childhood there. Upon arriving to the Bronx, what you had then was this older generation and, um, and a, a very young generation with very little in between. And so the youth population was huge in the Cambodian community. So you, you had teenagers or preteens with parents in like, you know, their late thirties and forties. And what we realized was that there wasn't much to support these, you know, preteens and teenagers. So we decided, and the group I worked for at the time was the Committee Against Anti-Asian Violence, which changed its name to CAV, Organizing Asian Communities. We decided to create a youth program because that just seemed like such a stark need for this particular community. And we called it the Youth Leadership Project. And we trained young people in community organizing skills so that they could work with their, um, with their parents who, you know, again, were of another time, space, generation, like folks who, in the view of these teenagers, they could hardly relate to and communicate with. We created this youth program so that we can build this bridge between them and that older generation and that that bridge could be a political one, one that allowed them to mm. organize, you know, around housing issues, around welfare state issues, uh, around healthcare issues. And that seemed to unite the, the, these, um, these two generations that had this huge chasm between them. The chasm, of course, produced by the unique circumstances of the Cambodian genocide. Mm-hmm. And this, that makes for some of the most interesting storytelling, I think, in the book, where the adults are kind of perceived as, you know, too stubborn and that's, but that stubbornness can be very useful, right? <laughs> when like occupying a space that they might be the ones who are stubbornly want to stay there and, you know, to uh, remain in the sit-in when other people might get weary. And so th- I think that dynamic that you described in the book was also really fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's, it's like the, um, the two generations have very different perspectives on what to do in the face of, you know, state power in the face of domination. The young people wanted to organize. They wanted to, uh, to assert, um, the power of their collectivity. And they were absolutely right to feel that way. But the adults seemed to caution them against, um, believing that the power you were up against was really a power you can negotiate with. Mm-hmm. Right. And in their view, if you, believe that if you really believed that you had some inherent rights that you were being denied, then you were failing to really understand how power operates, right? You were failing to see that 
it is arbitrary and that um, that these supposed rights which you are claiming are mythological. And I think both those um, those viewpoints were correct, you know, <laughs> and, and they merged in really interesting ways where the young people were like, listen, we're going to, you know, take action against these institutions and we're going to demand certain things. And the parents were like, okay, fine, we support you, but we're under no illusion that, you know, you winning this particular demand alters the, the, the power matrix, right? That it grants you some kind of, again, inalienable right that, um, that, that you inherently have. And, and so I, that was such an interesting balance of forces, you know, to see that tension play out, I think made for really effective organizing because it meant like people were going to take action, but on the other hand, they weren't going to buy into these, um, these reforms as some kind of like, you know, some kind of redemption, mm. some kind of arrival, uh, some kind of fulfillment of the promise of refugee resettlement. And I think we need both. We need to take action on the one hand, and on the other hand, we need to also realize that um, these actions do not fundamentally change um, or repair what happened to these communities. It can't right the wrong, which is, you know, the war in Cambodia, the U.S.'s role in that war, and um, the remarkable losses that people suffered as a result. At the beginning of the interview, you expressed that one of the things that brought you to uh, study these populations was because they speak to a very different kind of experience of Asian America, and they also unsettle kind of any um, broader claim that we have about Asian America. And, and in the book, you do describe this, how, um, of course, the model minority myth doesn't really belong. Uh, but also, you you say that the the, the kind of the narrative of the Southeast Asian as an underclass also doesn't adequately describe what's happening. And I wanted to kind of just see if you could um, explain that a bit more. The question for me is what room is there to really understand the particular role of Southeast Asian refugees within Asian America? And it seems to me like there's very little room in our current you know, paradigms, frameworks about Asian Americans to account for Southeast Asian refugees without relegating them as the exception to the rule. And so what I mean by that is when we think about Southeast uh, Asian immigrants, we think of those who kind of arrive to the U.S., uh, become part of these ethnic communities, these ethnic economies, um, where they, you know, labor in like, you know, Chinatowns, Koreatowns, and as you know, employees of, of ethnic owners, so on and so forth, right? And refugees don't follow that narrative. They're state-mediated. They come to the U.S. and they're, um, you know, they're cast into neighborhoods that don't look like ethnic economies. So clearly they're the exception to the rule. But what I want to argue is that it's in these exceptions that we find new rules, meaning, well, what exactly did happen to them? How did they get here? And what I map out in this book is that warfare, um, U.S. liberal warfare abroad, is also a route, right? In the same way that global capitalism is a route to the United States. 
and it's not an exceptional route, but it's a routine one, you know, mm-hmm. uh, it is the way in which so many people, um, becomes displaced and stateless. And we have to understand that Asian Americans are part of that global phenomena as well, that we're not just economic migrants, but that we're also, um, you know, those who, uh, are victims of modernity's central features, war, displacement, statelessness. And what I'd like to see more of in Asian American studies is a treatment of those subjects and not just um, a, a singular focus on the economic pressures and patterns that spur Asian migration to the U.S., that we should, again, center um, war, displacement, and statelessness. So you, you mentioned the, um, how the welfare system also adds to this. Um, and I think this is more later in your book, right? And I think in the fourth chapter, uh, where the welfare reforms of the 1990s particularly um, seem to, uh, you know, create a lot more burden for people in the hyper ghettos. Can you explain a bit about that? I mean, you were there, right, I think, during that process. So can you explain a bit about what it felt like, what was happening, how those welfare reforms um, ended up doing kind of the opposite of what people thought they might have uh, been intended to do? Sure. So in 1996, exactly 20 years ago, uh, summer of 96, uh, President Clinton, Bill Clinton signed into law the Personal Responsibility Work Reconciliation Act, otherwise known as welfare reform, which effectively dismantled the modern welfare state as we know it, the one that's been in place since the New Deal. It uh, called for the immediate removal of immigrants from food stamps and SSI, supplemental security for, um, you know, for those who uh, are unable to work. It called for a five-year term limit on cash assistance, right, which at the time was known as aid to families with dependent children. So that's like the standard monthly welfare check. And, um, it, uh, it also, you know, called for strict work requirements or what's known as workfare. So if you were going to get, you know, cash assistance for the next five years, which is again, like, you know, the time limit, uh, you'd have to take up no wage work in parks, municipal buildings in exchange for that welfare check. And this had an immediate and drastic negative impact on the Cambodian population in the Bronx, 80% of whom uh, were on some form of welfare program. So immediately it, it caused, you know, um, a lot of concern because as non-citizens, as permanent residents, they thought that they would be immediately thrown off of food stamps. What happened was in 1997, a year later, the, um, the Congress revised that and did not take non-citizens off of food stamps. But it did create a lot of, you know, um, a lot of concern. Uh, what was immediately, um, though, effective was the workfare requirement. So as I said, a lot of the Cambodian refugees like Ra were engaged in all forms of, you know, under the table work to make ends meet. 
But if you are now forced to go into a workfare program at like 30 hours a week cleaning up, you know, trash in the local park, that took the time away that you needed to earn that supplemental income, to go to factories, to do homeworking. And that, in fact, was the idea behind workfare. It wasn't to train anybody for like a job that they might get down the road. The government's own statistics, the city's own statistics proved out that, look, there are no jobs available, no livable wage jobs available to all these workfare workers once they go through this program. So what was the point? The point was to use it as a deterrent to say, okay, listen, Mm -hmm. we want you to get off of welfare, and this is one way to get you off, by making you go to these programs which are onerous, which you know are not going to give you any skills, and which will eat up all your time. If you're forced to go to these now, maybe you'll consider getting off the welfare rolls entirely, and it worked. It was very effective. 50% of the people who were on uh, AFDC or cash assistance got off once this onerous workfare requirement was put in place. A lot of the Southeast Asian refugees did not, though. What they did was they went to their workfare programs during the day, and then at night they earned their supplemental income, and I write about that in the book. But this had an immediate effect on, on families, right? Kids had to start helping their parents with the supplemental income as homeworkers. Um, more kids went to the factories, you know, and it just created th- th- this huge burden on families. Uh, Southeast Asian refugees, by and large, did not remove themselves from the welfare rolls. Instead, what they did was they took on double, triple duty. They went to workfare. They went to factories. They did homeworking at home. And they kept their supplemental. Um, they kept their benefits. And, and I write about that in the book and, um, and how how burdensome that was and how trying that was for so many families. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I remember the, um, sections were, what are they? The, all the teens are making uh scrunchies, right? Right. And competing over who can make the most. And it, um, it is very interesting to kind of, to see the, um, different kind of points of view that you can put on that, on that, that kind of workforce. Um, and I, what I like in the book is also how you, you take a moment like that and you're able to, kind of revise it or see it as see it in different lights, you know, as a survival tactic, but also as a kind of its own critique of what's happening. And as you know, you don't want to fetishize kind of resistance, but there's kind of a resistance there in some ways. Um, and you also mentioned that to someone like, like raw who has lived through so many displacements. Um, this is a word that you mentioned earlier in the, um, in the interview, uh, refugee temporality that she kind of is able to read this, these moments as, um, you know, and expect these moments and in, in, in expecting them, she's kind of able to maneuver a bit more around them. Um, so could you talk a bit about that? Like how you see her, uh, movement functioning, uh, as a kind of survival tactic or as a critique or something else, um, in the way that she, uh, uh, perceives of these events within a kind of refugee temporality. Yeah. So, Across the political spectrum, when we think about refugee resettlement, we think of it as a humanitarian uh, project, right? Even if we're critical of those who glorify U.S. freedoms and the free market, we still look at refugee resettlement as a, um, again, as a humanitarian project, which takes those who are, um, you know, vulnerable who are fleeing terror and persecution and delivering them into safety. 
And with that assumption, we, we begin to map out like this transfiguration of the refugee, right? Like there is the moment before resettlement and then there's the moment after. And the moment after is characterized by, um, you know, like terms such as liberation, such as, um, as peace and repose and redemption. Well, in talking to Ra and other refugees, those feelings, that transfigurative change was not much in evidence. Hmm. Instead, what you got from them was this deep ambivalence about all of it. Um, and a clear sense from them that their lives in the United States, although in many ways less lethal than it was in the war zone and in the camps really wasn't all that different in terms of how power operated and in terms of how um, somebody was always in charge and in terms of how they could never quite make all the decisions that um, determined what was going to happen with their lives, you know, hmm. in effect, they talked about still being in this state of captivity where they had no negotiating power and where they continued to remain vigilant because they didn't know how long it would be before they were forced to move somewhere else yet again. And you see this take shape in the numerous housing displacements that they experienced in their first few years. You see it take shape in with the welfare state and how they're told, okay, here, apply for every program. And now, oh, oh, can't be in on these programs anymore. You got to get out. We're going to throw you off. They see it in terms of like being told one day that here's work as, you know, a garment home worker, but the next day it all dries up. So now you have to go to the factories. And so their general outlook on life in the United States is we have to keep things moving. We have to keep, you know, keep moving as we always have, right? Not because we're somehow evading power, but because we don't want power to, you know, make a final determination about what to do with us. And that is the refugee experience, isn't it? Right? It's, it's ultimately keep moving in order to survive, in order so that this power that we can never escape doesn't make final determination about who we are and what will happen to us. And I think that continues in the U.S. context. But few of us recognize that. Refugees, though, like Rod, do recognize it. And I tried my best in the book to convey that, that ongoing refugee temporality. Wow. So <laughs> thank you. Um, I, I think I agree with that, that, that you translate that very well through the book. Uh, and there's a moment, I don't think it's Rasta. I think it's, um, what's her name? Uh, Kunthia's story. Uh, which is, I think, just in one chapter, uh, an, another uh, refugee who w was in the, the work fair programs. Uh, and that there's a moment where she's describing the kind of supervisors and just just how the way that they that, that they talk to the people that are, you know they're supposed to be managing and guiding. Uh, 
not just misogynistic, but just from such a kind of superior point of view, you could almost be reading like, you know, a, a novel about colonialism and see the exact same kind of language being employed. Uh, and it is very shocking in, in a lot of ways to, to read through all these interviews. Um, yeah. But I think you also devote a bit of the book to explaining how their gender also played into the way they were treated and, and also the way that they dealt with power. Um, I mean, did they find solidarity in, or kind of overlapping experiences with other Latino or black women? Like, how did their gender particularly uh, come into play in shaping their experience? So, you know, the, um, the ability to keep the things moving, the, um, the versatility, the, um, the creativity that, uh, comes with refugee temporality, right? Uh, with the refugee condition, I think is most lucidly, uh, explained, most powerfully illustrated through the lives of women like Ra. And this is because in addition to making, um, these economic negotiations, these, um, the, these, these housing negotiations that they're also making gender negotiations or to put it more precisely, these economic negotiations, these housing negotiations and all these ways in which they're dealing with power are always gendered to begin with. Right. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so, you know, they're thinking, well, how do I, um, provide for my family as, um, as a garment homeworker. Well, I will play the role as one who is, um, you know, the type of gendered subject that downgraded manufacturing needs in order to extract surplus value of this sort, you know? And there's a, there's a, there's a vast literature about this, you know, Iwa Ong's literature, um, excuse me, her, her studies on, um, Malaysian factory women, mm -hmm. uh, spirits of resistance brings this out beautifully, right? Uh, you know, decades before, um, you know, uh, my book, you know, she really sets forth the kind of way in which gender is so central to, uh, these postmodern, um, but downgraded manufacturing modalities. And, um, and you see that play out in Ra's life as well. You know, like she is getting these homeworking orders from China's Chinese middlemen in large part because she plays this gendered role as one who is flexible, domestic contingent. Right. And she can, you know, get her family members, her children in particular, who she's simultaneously giving care to, to engage in this production process. All of that speaks to a very distinct, you know, gender division of labor. Uh, at the same time, you know, how does she get across the war zone into the Thai camps, uh, and, and survive with, you know, a newborn in tow? Well, she does so by staying with a husband who she had 
um, an arranged marriage with the Khmer Rouge arranged marriage, arranged marriage with many people left those arranged marriages after the Khmer Rouge um, were driven from Cambodia. But she stayed in it because in part she knew that this was the best way for her to survive, mm-hmm. that as a single young mom, she was not going to be able to um, to negotiate as deftly as she did uh, as, as a ostensibly married woman. Right. So these are the kinds of gendered negotiations that come with keeping it moving. And um, in the book, I I try to demonstrate that as best I can to, to show us how these maneuvers, these um, these evasions of, of power, these um, moving in and out of different sites are simultaneously gendered negotiations. So uh, as this book has arrived in 2015 and 2016, um, I think what's on a lot of people's minds thinking about refugees is, of course, refugees coming from Syria. Uh, and so I wanted to kind of start to end the interview on Syria. And if you see any correlations or, you know, I'm sure I'm not the first to, like, to, to uh, make these uh, similar or to try and see similarities of patterns. But do you find any correlations in the way that the U.S. is reacting to these new refugee populations um, and those who came from Cambodia? Or do you see like, some difference in the way that the refugee is being constructed uh, at this moment compared to how it was in the 1980s? So what's different and what's the same between Southeast Asian refugees of, you know, 30, now close to 40 years ago, and um, Syrian refugees today? Well, to begin, what's the same? The same is that refugees have always been used in the service of U.S. foreign policy, that our resettlement policy has never really been a humanitarian or domestic project, but always a foreign policy project, meaning that we will resettle refugees who are useful to our broader geopolitical interests. And by this, at this point in history, we are absolutely certain about this. You know, there's, um, there's no other explanation for why the vast majority of refugees who were resettled to the United States in the second half of the 20th century came from communist countries, right? Um, today, the Syrian refugees don't serve that same function. You know, they don't have the same Cold War utility that Southeast Asian refugees once had. And so it comes as no surprise that we, we resettle so, um, so few of them and, and just an egregiously low number of Syrians compared to the rest of the country. I mean, even this fiscal year alone, we were supposed to resettle a meager 10,000, uh, but as of today, we've settled like 2,500 of them, you know? Mm-hmm. So, and, it, and it's because there is no foreign policy, no geopolitical gain in resettling Syrian refugees as there once was with, um, refugees from Southeast Asia, as well as from Cuba and other, um, communist, you know, nations. So, so that's what's the same, that refugees 
are always going to be resettled based on our foreign policy interests. That um, it's more about what they can do for us than what we can do for them. So, that, so what's different about Syrian refugees and Southeast Asian refugees is that the Syrian refugees today will likely not be resettled to hyperghettos because they won't serve the same function as you know the, the exceptions to African Americans and Latinos, right? That the Cambodians and other Southeast Asian refugees once served as. They won't be these tools, if you will, to further justify the punishment and um, criminalization of African-Americans. I think that moment has passed in many respects. So I think the key difference between Syrian refugees coming today and Southeast Asian refugees that came decades ago is that the Syrian refugees are no longer viewed as so-called good refugees, right? Those who are here to kind of you know, bolster claims of U.S. humanitarianism and the virtues of the free market in the same way that Cambodians and uh, other Southeast Asian refugees and really other Cold War refugees were were used for during the, um, you know, the, the 80s and the 90s. Uh, Syrian refugees today serve more as the fi- figures who um, who uphold the U.S. narrative that uh, national security is of utmost importance and that we can never keep the nation fully safe. In other words, they serve this, this new narrative, which is about uh, the existential threat that terrorism poses, mm. right? And, and, and U.S. humanitarian largesse despite that threat. So they're useful in, in, in a new way, which is very distinct from how um, Southeast Asians were were useful decades ago, but I guess the consistency is that they're useful, right? Mm-hmm. That they're here to serve um, our broader political needs as opposed to um, us serving their needs. In other words, perhaps we need the refugees more than they need us. Wow. Okay, so um, we've taken up a lot of your time. Uh, thank you so much for this enlightening interview. And do you mind uh, ending the interview by sharing with us any new research that you've been working on? So my work has always been locally based, meaning that as a scholar, I like to turn to the city that I'm living in. And uh, I'm a native New Yorker who now lives in Austin, Texas. And so um, my sights have turned to Austin and uh, I'm looking at this interesting phenomena here in Austin, which is the declining African-American population. Hmm. Now, you know, African-Americans are shrinking in numbers in many major cities, Chicago, D.C., New York, uh, and L.A., other, and other places. But Austin is different in that Austin as a, as, as a city as a whole is growing, is, is booming in its population. And when we look at fast-growing cities like Austin – none of them should see any decline in any of its major, major racial groups. And that's true of African-Americans as well. Well, Austin ha- happens to be the only major growing, um, excuse me, f- uh, fast growing major city that is simultaneously losing its African-American population. Mm-hmm. And I'm currently studying why that is. And it has something to do with the unique convergence of you know, Jim Crow segregation and neoliberal gentrification and the, the impact of those 
those those forces, I guess the, the dual threat that those forces uh, posed on African-Americans in particular. So that's my current research. Um, and it, it looks at, you know, the black population loss, gentrification, the history of segregation in the city. Uh, in some ways, you know, it's the anti- Austin booster book, you know, um, some might call it the keep Austin weird killjoy book, but it's a story that has to be told because, um, you know, these ostensibly liberal cities are, um, are able to be what they are due in large part to the way in which they sacrifice their, um, their African American populations. That sounds fascinating. I'm from, well, I was born in Portland, which is, I think where the keep Portland weird thing they also have that, you know, keep Portland weird. And I lived in Seattle for six years. So there seems like the, I, I was always warning there is this strange phenomenon where these cities, maybe because of the IT industry, they're growing so fast. And yet almost the faster they grow, the more white they become in a very strange dynamic. So uh, thank you so much for sharing that with us. Um, I'm excited to, to keep up with that, your research and um, hopefully to read that book when it comes out. Thanks for having me. This was fun. Appreciate it. Great. Thank you so much for being here. Take care. Take care. Thank you for listening to my interview with Eric Tang on his book, Unsettled, Cambodian Refugees in the New York City Hyperghetto. If you have any questions, grievances, or suggestions for books for this podcast, you can message me on the New Books in Asian American Studies Facebook page. See you next time. Mm-hmm.